Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is time for a quick health check, ladies and gentlemen. The nation has been paralysed with fear for the best part of the last five months. Frightened to go out, scared to go back to work, worried about getting on a train and terrified of dying of the world's most dangerous virus. Well, some of you have been like that anyway. Uh, Fortunately, not everyone feels the same way, but the government can't seem to decide which of the two groups of people to side with. While wrestling with the complex problem of how to figure out the measurement of academic success for teenagers this week, the government has also been plotting to try and drag us kicking and screaming back to some kind of normality. Heaven help us, after all. This morning, Health Secretary Matt Hancock has been explaining his decision to us at Talk Radio. He announced yesterday that Public Health England is no more and it is to be replaced with a new entity entitled the National... Institute for Health Protection. Will it be any better? Will it do what it is supposed to do? Hancock says we should all be getting regular tests for coronavirus, even if we don't have symptoms, but it's a step change for the government. But if it helps lift even more of the lockdown, then it would seem to be worthwhile, wouldn't it? We'll be seeking medical help from Professor Carol Sikora. 0344-499-1000. Coming up later on in the show, we'll be talking to Neil Oliver, historian and archaeologist, on what has made him angry this week. A little bit like Peter Hitchens on Monday. I sense that Neil is reaching the end of his tether with this virus, as many of us are. And even though his children have gone back to school in Scotland, things are not as they should be. We'll also be talking to Royal writer Angela Levin about the Meghan and Harry circus. She's been giving more interviews as she seeks more privacy and tales of behind-the-scenes squabbling between Prince Harry and the Queen have further damaged his image and his chances of returning to the UK, where apparently they want to come back and do some charity. Charitable works, Harry. Harry. It's not very nice in California. 0344-499-1000. Yesterday we asked if anyone had been affected by the effective shutting down of various parts of the NHS. And this morning we'll be talking to the head of campaigns for the Freedom Association, who also happens to suffer from chronic pain. We'll hear his tale of woe. And as ever, we want to hear from you. The trials and tribulations of quarantine, holidays and the continuing saga, of course, as we bring you the latest news from Dover uh, and those illegal migrant boats. They're still coming. There's still plenty of them. Another 50 have arrived this morning. Uh, we'll let you know where they're going. We all listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest great radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And as ever, let me remind you that we are streaming live on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter, so you can watch us as well as listening to us. Join the growing band of people uh, who have actually worked out that the radio doesn't just have to be for your ears. It can also be for your eyes. It's all very exciting stuff. Let's talk, though, first of all this morning to Professor Carol Sikora, the former head of the World Health Organization's Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham, and an all-round good egg, a man who generally tells it as it is, uh, but also tries to elicit some form of goodness out of the latest breaking news from Matt Hancock. Carol, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Matt. I've never been described a good egg before. Thank well, there you, you go. Much. Listen, there's something, there's something for everyone on this show. And uh, we, try to, uh, we try to only talk to people who are good eggs, really, because it's very important, I think, at this particular juncture uh, of our lives and of our year um, that we don't fall into a kind of state of depression. Because I've noticed this week a lot of people that we talk to have started to get a bit angry. They've started to get a bit sort of, um, I, don't, I, I would describe it as kind of, uh, I don't know, just, just generally frustrated with, with the fact that we don't seem to be making making any progress really i know and it's you know that's what happens at the end of pandemics it's very slow to come to an end Mm. it's slow to get out of it to get society back to normal and you know i'm sitting in my office in london near marylebone and london's empty west london is shut down and no one's walking the streets here the traffic's bad because it's raining but Mm. that's about it But where we got to, I mean, if you look at the hard data, the numbers of people going into hospital with corona is almost zero. The number of people dying with corona, sad that it is, is a handful, a very small handful. And most of those got infected a long time ago and have had multi-system problems. And basically, we're coming to the end of that. The trouble is the gloom and doomsters are predicting another wave of it. Where's that going to come from? I just don't believe it. And uh, uh, I I think epidemiologists love doom because that's what sells them. It doesn't sell to say you're going to be okay. But I'm beginning to hear this, as as, as you are, Carol, I'm beginning to hear this ridiculous kind of, you know, the inevitable second wave is coming. Well, it's not inevitable. There's nothing inevitable about it, is there? I've seen an NHS England script. Uh, you know, with some nice slides and uh, it talks about preparing for the second wave. If we had that, we'd have to lock down again, we'd have to shut the schools, shut the universities, close everything. Mm. We can't do that. And no other country is doing that or even contemplating doing that. I think, you know, this government sometimes surprises me how long they get away with this incompetence, mm. basically. Well, what I mean, uh, you and I have both been very supportive of this government, um, but it's no. getting more and more difficult to do that as they seem to be less encouraged and less encouraging uh, to actually get people back to work, force them back to work if necessary, and convince them that actually, whatever the risk is, you know, it's a much smaller risk than you think it is. Absolutely. The numbers are very, very small now. The chance of finding the virus is minuscule. You know, the vaccination trials are not being done here because there's no virus here. They're going to Latin America where Brazil is particularly high for reasons we don't fully understand. And that seems a reasonable decision. Uh, The problem here is the the lack of sort of real leadership from Mm. the top. The Prime Minister goes on holiday. This is a great crisis the country's still in. Not because of the virus, but because of the public reaction. 
reaction to right. the virus. You know? I mean, everybody so, needs a holiday, but I'm not even taking one. So what the hell he's doing taking one is anybody's <laughs> guess. You know exactly. Well, at this time, you need to have a leader that's uh, uh, driving forward. Yeah. And, and the medical advice with the demise of Public Health England is probably a, a rather risky time to disband. If you want to fire the chief executive or the chairman or whatever, mm. fire them. But don't disband an organisation in the middle of a crisis. That seems bad. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to have to employ the same people. Some of them are actually very good. Well, I assume they're just moving. I presume they're just moving them along um, and. And most of the people who work for, for Public Health England are going to be working for the new outfit, aren't they? Exactly. And then the whole problem is how much local public health do you want compared with national public health? And yeah. we saw it with the Test and Trace programme. So that's a national programme, but they have no local knowledge. So you, you phone a, a centre somewhere in Slough, say, from the north of Scotland, well, not Scotland, but so north of England, mm. say, Northumbria. And you have no idea where Northumbria is mm. when you're answering the phone. You have certainly no idea where the, uh, what the, the social makeup of any of the towns up there are. Right. And this is important to have local involvement and Public Health England did have outreaches in all regions mm. of the country and that was good. So how it's going to be replicated, how the transition's going to go, hopefully it'll all be over by the time it happens. I mean if I'm right and it's coming to an end from a medical viewpoint, yeah. then there'll be no problem. But the difficulty is I suppose, Carol, and, and we've heard Matt Hancock saying this, that you know, um, basically yes, you thought it was coming to an end in lots of other countries, but now it seems to be coming back you know, but my question always is and I cannot get an answer from anybody sensible is, you know, it's all very well talking about, you know, rising infection rates in places like Spain, uh, in Germany uh, in, uh, uh, in New Zealand and in Australia, but you know, is it actually causing any serious injuries or deaths? That, that's the key question yeah. Mike, it doesn't seem to be it's as though the virus has changed or we've changed, something's definitely changed yeah. uh, and if you just look at the graphs every day published on British hospitalizations, there's almost none mm. due to COVID, which is good and uh, so it, and the infections are not, they're, they're staying at around a, just over a thousand a day and of course now we have 300,000 uh, te- over 300,000 tests available yeah. which we didn't have at the beginning of all, remember all that rush to get to the first 100,000 and right. they made it up by posting the things and counting those as tests with, just by posting the sample, yes. uh, collecting devices to the patients, to, to people out there and they counted those the tests had been done which right. of course a lot of them are just thrown into the dust. But that was partly because of the ridiculous kind of atmosphere which was febrile coming from the media yeah. who <laughs> was saying well you've only got 98,000 they go no 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 we've, we've sent out another 2,000 <laughs> so now we've got 100,000 I mean it was nonsensical to me it, I was it, like this it, is not helping anyone. You know, it's, it's, it's very childish. And sometimes you, you think governments are above that sort of thing. And they really should to be. The, to the, the whole thing. Yeah. But I, I think a new organisation is needed, and I think it needs the right balance between local organisation and expertise and through councils, for example, who mm. have health departments. Some of the public health function is run by the, the borough councils around the country, and that's good because they have the knowledge. And then obviously a national to overlay the plans and feed in predictive information about where the virus is. Mm. We don't know where the virus is now. I mean, it's like looking for a, a load of fish in the sea, and it, suddenly it's actually, they've gone quiet, uh, but they may reappear. So we need to know where they are. Yeah. And we don't have but you can buy, a, buy such a thing as a fish finder to find fish, and you put it on your boat and whenever you go out on the sea uh, you find where they are it's like a little radar underwater right why can't we get something like that for the medical business <laughs> i know I, I think the old the old public health doctors from the good old days like john snow the pub in soho that yes. commemorates john mr snow, cholera which, 
uh, Mr. Cholera, and he worked that out fantastically. Mm. What he, he knew there was a cholera pandemic because a little girl first died on a Sunday night, and by the Tuesday there were 30 cases. So he knew that he'd got a problem. He was a GP as well as public health. And he traced it by mapping out which pump you know, the old-fashioned pump to yes. get water, uh, all the people in the area had taken it from, and he mapped out to one pump. So he took the handle off, direct intervention, what a story, mm. uh, and threw the pump handle away. Of course, there was civil unrest. This guy's removed the pump handle. Yeah, yeah. How dare he? But the cholera went away, and he did the right thing. And it's that sort of epidemiology, shoe leather epidemiology, if you like, that we have to get going yeah. uh, to get to the end. And that requires testing, probably saliva testing because that's coming now in the mm. next week or two there are results with saliva that are going to be good and that's so much easier for us all just to spit into a little tube and uh, or swap make a mouthwash and mm. put it in the tube and send it away rather than having unpleasant sticks put up our nose and Quite. into the back of our throat i mean matt hancock's it. talking about testing everybody reg- very regularly regardless of whether they have symptoms or not do you think that's a good idea that, that's a good idea. That is exactly, we need to tell, We need to see where the virus is and how it changes with time mm. and, and to pick up cases. That's how Korea, Singapore, the, the advanced countries in terms of handling corona, they were doing that right from the start. Germany, the same. Here, uh, it's, it's, it's cumbersome for a whole range of reasons. Right. Well, the interesting thing as well for me um, is that it's almost a political decision that we need now, though, because we've got all of the medical information that we know uh, uh, that, that I'm not sure we can get any more. I mean, Matt Hancock again said to uh, Alistair Stewart on breakfast this morning, you know, there is nothing that he knows about coronavirus that we do not know. So they're sharing all this information. Uh, we appear to have much more knowledge about it than we had, say, back in March or April. Um, and now what we need is a political decision, a political choice to be made um, that we start to somehow convince people that it's not something to fear. Absolutely. And uh, testing is the key. I think getting the schools back is the next thing. And that's going to be See, a See, I worry about that. I worry that the, I worry yeah, that I the teachers are going to throw that whole idea and that whole project under a bus. And they're going to somehow come up with doubts. They're going to somehow cast doubts on the safety of the schools. And I'm, I'm just very worried that that's going to happen. And again, people are using it as a political ploy. Mm. I had an argument with a lady uh, on the alternate sage the other day, oh, yeah. and it turns out she was a member of the Communist Party, and yeah. she's got an extra political activist. Mm. So I don't mind her being a member, but why should she bring politics to the decision to get schools back? It's not a political decision. It's a safety issue. Right. We think it's safe. And 1,500 paediatricians, that's child health doctors, signed a petition. To, to They're all consultants. They signed a petition last month to school must go back it's perfectly safe yeah so who better than 1500 pediatricians to ask well exactly right but also as you say you know london is is deserted a lot of parts of the country are deserted the only thing that's not deserted are the roads because nobody's going on the trains uh, i found out yesterday that as you might expect the way britain is run the train companies get the same money from the government no matter who <laughs> travels actually on the train so the trains being empty uh, they get the same money so there's no incentive for them to fill the trains up because they don't care no, I, I went down to our cancer centre in South Wales and uh, yesterday on the train, carriage to myself both directions. Yeah. Absolutely unbelievable. 
It's and crazy, uh, nobody travels. More staff on the train than passengers, and yeah. that's the way it goes. Yeah, I know. Absolutely incredible. So as far as the kind of um, the way that it's currently behaving, the virus, I was asking this question when we get you on. Um, what have you noticed in, the, say, the past month or so? Because obviously we've got these quarantines in place. We're, we're talking about the government's now talking about putting more countries uh, under quarantine. If you go there and you have to come back from holiday, Croatia, possibly Greece, possibly Turkey. Um, you know, it doesn't fill people with a confidence does it no and, and you know the, if anyone's worried about getting someone wants to see how it's how likely it is they need to go on the website of the european disease prevention center ecdc it's very simple to remember mm. and you can see a beautiful table updated every 24 hours looking at the number of cases incidence of coronavirus per hundred thousand population mm. and that magic number is 20 per hundred thousand below 20 per hundred thousand we're running about 18 at mm. the moment uh, I mean, that so, doesn't sound like very many to me. No, it's... it's I mean, if you had... That means if you've got Wembley full of people, uh, basically with 100,000 people, 20 of them yeah. have got the virus. That's exactly. nothing. Exactly. No, but of course, you have to remember, Mike, they can spread it to other people, so it's better not to get let them in. But testing can show which they are. And, you know, quarantine's great. The, the way it's done in other countries is very straightforward. You're tested on arrival. You agree, you sign a form to agree to go and sit in a hotel, not actually in your room. You can just wander around mm. the hotel, have some lunch. And then within 8 to 12 hours, you get a text saying you're free. And yeah. then you, you want, you're free to go. But surely, the only problem, but surely the only problem with the infection of 20 people in a hundred thousand is if the r rate is over one we don't hear i don't hear anybody talking about the r rate anymore no it's so it's impossible to measure accurately when it's so the virus is so low right uh, it was easy at the beginning when we were getting uh, you know eight nine thousand cases a day around the place uh, and uh, now it's very difficult to measure for yeah the but I mean, what i'm so, saying is if if the r rate is below one then those 20 people aren't going to infect anybody, are they? Yeah, you're right. They can't infect anybody else. And, so, and of course, remember, we have got social distancing in yeah. place, and we're, 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 people are avoiding each other. And, you know, the, what you said at the very start of this is that people are still scared, especially older people. I and mean, you can see them on the streets mm. almost scared to walk out when there's other people around. Mm. And uh, uh, I think it's very sad. They've been properly scared. But they've been conditioned uh, to be scared. That's the point. I mean, you've got people going on holiday to Spain on planes which are full. You've got people coming back. I had a guy call me yesterday, came back from Poland uh, on a plane, on a Ryanair plane, and nobody was even um, uh, ensuring that everyone had a mask on. And people were sitting in a plane, clearly, you know, breathing all over one another, being next to one another. Now, um, you know, that gives me a mixed signal, really. Yeah, and, and that's the problem. There are mixed signals. And the, the, the most dangerous thing is to go in crowds. If you're not in crowds, you're not likely to, to, uh, to pick it up anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, the super spreaders seem to have gone. We don't hear much about super spreaders. But no. the most important change now is the lack of hospital admissions from mm. it, which is fantastic. So and remember, 50% of people infected have no symptoms at all. Yeah. Most of the rest have very mild symptoms. It looks as though things have changed with this virus. Some of it is alarming, the sense of the headaches and the, um, and the loss of smell and mm. so on. But, you know, I could live with loss of smell for a week. I don't mind. I can handle that. And I think most people could. Mm. So that's the price we pay for the chances of getting back to normality yeah. in society. I mean, all the people I, mean, I know that say they've had it are delighted that they've had it because they now yeah. feel as if they won't get it again and they feel as if they can do whatever they want. And that's kind of the, you know, the difference between those who are frightened and those who are not. 
yeah, the COVID elite, those yeah. that know they've had it and uh, are not going to get it again and are out there. And I think we can't wait to a vaccine. A vaccine is going to take months yeah. more to come. And it, you know, is, is it going to be accepted? Who knows? I think there's going to be a big row about the vaccine coming. Mm. I think probably by October time, there'll be a big row internationally, not just in Britain, about the amount of money that's gone into it and, and what we've actually got as a product at the end. I mean, there are four lead vaccines and they would make a difference if they work, but they never worked for SARS. Mm. And that was 2003. And the same amount of effort went into it. So it's not all clear that a vaccine is going to be our saviour, basically. Mm. And we talked yesterday, uh, Professor, about uh, £10 billion being pumped into the NHS to basically help alleviate the waiting list problem uh, and also the cancer patients kind of uh, logjam, if you like, which you are obviously very familiar with. Um, a lot of people very upset that, that much of the NHS is not working as it should normally be because of COVID, even though the COVID-19 is not really now a massive problem. I know, and, and it's not helped by NHS England circulating their second wave plans, which basically means stopping everything yeah. again. And right. there's no chance, and it's scheduled that the plan I've seen, the schedule is from mid September, which means if you stopped everything again from mid September, there's not much now because a lot of people are on holiday. Mm. So we've got a month to get things done. We can't clear a backlog in that sort of time. And the trouble is, it's not treating cancer patients or heart disease patients, it's diagnosing them, it's mm. getting the diagnostics done, the, the CT scans, the MR scans, they're putting the tubes into various bits of the body mm. to get samples of cancer cells. And it's all that that's just come to a stop. And people, there's not much incentive to get back. And it's the way the NHS has always worked. So £10 billion is great, but how are we actually practically going to do it? And where are we going to get the staff from? And how are we going to incentivize the staff to, to motivate them to do the same thing that happened for COVID way back in March, April, to do the same for the main diseases, heart disease and cancer in September. That's what we've got to really do. And you know, sure, we've got to monitor if there's a second wave and with, with the illness coming from it. But if there isn't, we've just got to motor fast uh, to get cancer and heart disease sorted out. That's exactly right. And one final question for you, coming in from uh, Twitter from somebody called Ashdown. They said, could you please ask the professor why all GPs aren't offering a full range of face-to-face services? I've heard a lot about this. Some are, but an awful lot are not. I know that it's totally inconsistent. I guess it's up to the GPs. One of the problems with general practice over the last few years, it's become very much a part-time business. So mm. people come in for defined sessions. They do the session, then they go. And uh, uh, it, that, there's no one seemingly in charge of coordinating. So there's no policy about whether you do telephone call, consultations, or face-to-face. Most people prefer face-to-face because mm. they can explain, they can see, they can be examined, they can have their blood pressure taken and their eyes looked at and so on. But it's true, a lot can be done on the phone. And I think what we need is a mix mm. and maybe a mix favouring face-to-face rather than favouring telephones for everything. But screening by phone and then come in and see the GP and talk. And it, it's got a psychological reassurance to see someone. You know, yeah. you're probably too young, to, Mike, to remember Dr. Finley's casebook. I'm not actually, all... strangely enough. <laughs> you remember Janet. that? Janet. It was great. It was great, yeah. AJ Cronin yeah. wrote the, the I'm also old that. enough to remember when the doctor used to come and visit us when I was a child. We had a great doctor called Dr. Ellison who used to come right. and see me when I was ill. All gone, all gone. Yeah. And uh, uh, now you're lucky if you get uh, a young doctor on the emergency duty coming. And even that, you go to a hospital now and are yeah. seen 
the, the advantage of that, of course, you have bright lights, you have access to an X-ray if you need it on the spot. Yeah. So there are. I mean, all, all I get now, I'm afraid, is, is text messages from saying, um, "We understand, as far as our records are concerned, you're a smoker, and we should uh, urge you to give up." They don't know that I gave up about three years ago, you know, because that's how little I have to do with them. Well, and they collect brownie points in terms of well, they get money. From the government. They get money <laughs> for knowing how many people smoke. So I'm not telling much. them that I've given up because they'll claim the money on my behalf, and I won't see any of it. My wife was a, a practice nurse and she was driven mad just given a list for the morning to phone people up to find out their smoking yeah. store just to get money for the practice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good enough reason for me to do, do away with Public Health England because that's what they were doing. <laughs> Professor exactly. Carol Sakura, as ever, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Former head of the WHO Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine, of course, at the University of Buckingham. Always a man uh, with something good to say. Uh, but even he, as you would have heard, is being critical now of the way the government is dithering about the way that we need to get back to normal because we do i'm not going to get into this whole new normal nonsense i'm not going to say uh, we'll have to pretend that life is never going to be the same again we're going to have to get back to some uh, form of different style of life no we can get back to life we can get back to normal and we need to do it and we need to do it now it's that simple the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio it's only Wednesday and we haven't done a story yet on Meghan and Harry. Uh, but the front page of The Sun today, Meghan talks like a Brit. Life with the baked bean, the bubble and their dustbin lids was a pain in the kyber. Um, now, some of you might not understand a word of that. That's, of course, meant to be Cockney rhyming slang. Uh, basically, the story is a bit like Madonna when she decided to come uh, over to Britain and marry Guy Ritchie. She used to develop this kind of rather ridiculous British accent, which a lot of Americans like to do because they think it makes them sound different and it makes them sound interesting and it makes them sound worldly wise because the one thing you can say about America, a great country in many, many ways, uh, is that the people that live there uh, are very uh, insular. Many of them have never left the country at all. Many of them never leave the country uh, and, and never actually venture anywhere near Europe. But of course, Meghan Markle will think that she is no end uh, of a sophisticat because she has lived in the UK. Uh, now, of course, she lives in Montecito, uh, which is a rather ritzy enclave of Santa Barbara, uh, up in sort of Southern California, going up a bit further north from Los Angeles. Um, also, a uh, big piece in the paper today by Richard Kay, um, why Harry was a fool to pick a fight with this woman, uh, and this woman in question being uh, one of the Queen's um, sort of uh, trusted confidants, uh, with whom he apparently had a bit of a row over something that Meghan wanted. Let's talk to Angela Levin now, uh, who is, of course, a royal biographer, uh, to get her take on it all. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. So, um, it's the story that won't go away, really, isn't it? I mean, I know this book is still doing the rounds, and, and uh, you know, some people are buying it, no doubt. Some people have read the extracts uh, of it as well. But um, it's an extraordinary It's a, just an extraordinary story, really, isn't it? Well, I think one story after another comes pouring out and we haven't got anywhere near the end yet. No. Um, it's just an obsession to be in the, in, in the public eye, which is extraordinary for a couple who said that they guarded their um, privacy uh, enormously yeah. and they wanted to be at peace. This is completely different. They're obviously at war with the British people and the royal family. And they want everybody to know it. And, and every day they came up with another story, which must make a lot of business for their um, 
um, press advisors. Yeah. Also, there's a kind of a strangeness about Meghan Markle, who seems to feel like it's imperative for her to issue some kind of interview and or statement or picture or something whenever anyone in the royal family has a birthday. I mean, Princess Anne had a birthday the other day and Meghan suddenly pops up with an interview about racism. Yes, this is very interesting, isn't it? Um, she said in the book, or oh, well, I believe everything there because they haven't started suing is actually what <laughs> she's approved of, right. that um, she wanted to be in the front line. She, in fact, she was in the sidelines and she couldn't cope with that. And she did. She wanted to push everyone out the way because she has enormous confidence in one level that she can run the palace much better than anyone else and that she can bring in a wider range of people, uh, younger people um, and, and people of all colours. That might well be so, the latter one, but you can't expect to arrive in the greatest monarchy in the world, the British monarchy, and after two or three months when she said this, um, decide you know how to run it better. It mm. just doesn't work like that. So she's trying all the time to outsmart them. You know, no, 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 I'm better than you. <laughs> right. And and that happens. You can see it when there's anything going on, whether it's a birthday, whether it's an important engagement. She wants to smush it or divert attention. And she has tremendous power to do this. I mean, all the press seem... Uh, including talk radio, seem delighted to show what a sort of bullish, determined, ambitious woman she is. Well, I'm not sure that that's the way I would describe her, but uh, that's for perhaps another time. But certainly yeah. one of the things that, uh, uh, that she seems to love to do um, is to make sure that her views of the world are, are passed around by her close friends. And as you talked about that book, you know, Finding Freedom, Omid Scobie only the other day gave another interview in which he said, oh, yes, uh, Meghan and Harry want to come back to the United Kingdom to carry out their charitable works, having clearly yes. been instructed to say that by her. Yes, um, that's very interesting. Um, it, it would seem that she has also said that she absolutely doesn't want to come back because she had such a horrid time. It was ghastly in every way. And she's even said that she gave up her life for it. And, you know, what a waste of, of her life yes. it's been. Of course, it was only just over two years. So right. got plenty left. Well, you would um, think, yeah. I mean, she's got all those uh, bathrooms to clean, hasn't she? 16 bathrooms. I mean, <laughs> she'll be on a constant cleaning spree with the old uh, the flash. I don't, think, I don't think you'll catch <laughs> Megan doing any bathrooms, to be honest. No, I um, suspect not. <laughs> but... Um, I, I I can't imagine. I think Harry might come back. He he will need to because of his visa. Right. He can't just stay there indefinitely. Otherwise, he gets citizenship, and there's a lot of tax implications. Yes. But um, he might very well come back. I hope he does because his grandparents and his father, and even William, even though they're not pals at the moment, you know, his family. I don't think Meghan is, and I'm certainly sure that they won't bring Archie. Mm. Well, poor little Archie, who has no friends, you know, the youngest Billy no-mates in the history of the royal family. You know, it seems really sad that that uh, that, that he will not know, really, um, his extended uh, members of the royal family. I think that's incredibly sad. We don't know if he hasn't got any friends. I mean, she did say that she was too well known to go to the local... Right. Well, she's the one that said that, though. Yeah, she said that. 
But, I mean, it didn't mean that she doesn't invite friends around who've got small children. Mm. I think we, we, don't, we don't know about that one. But we do know how important it is for children to know their grandparents on both sides and to see, you know, they get a broader view. They're loved by more people. I mean, really deep love, not, oh, what a sweet little child. Mm. You know, it's, it's incredibly powerful, the love between grandparents and great-grandparents for a small child. Um, and that, I think, is really incredibly sad. It really is. Now, the latest project that uh, we're told about, which is in the mail today, um, is that they're pitching a top-secret project to US film and television executives. This is a story from Variety, which normally uh, gets these things right. Um, basically, they want to be the executive producers uh, of, of, the, of said project. I think they're going to find that uh, Hollywood uh, doesn't really take that much notice of them. Well, this came out some time ago when they said they wanted to do... like. Um, uh, like Obama had done mm. and um, be the power behind um, worthwhile, worthy uh, world interests topics. Um, so I'm not surprised about that. But I do feel that um, a lot of directors who might hire them would be a bit cautious because Megan is so confident of her views that she might very well be difficult to work with. Um, yes. I'm big battle here. And, um, uh, you know, she wanted to star in a Superwoman film, but that hasn't come off. And I expect that's the same nervousness. Um, and of course, Harry will give in to her um, uh, and, and let her make the first judgment and, and be happy to follow. So we'll have to see what it is. I mean, if it's telling the world. Well, it's bound to be, be something, it'll be something terribly woke, won't it? Well, yes, I was going to say, if it's, if it's something about telling the world how to behave, yes. but excluding themselves, I don't think that's going to work very well. No. You know, like with flying and like all sorts of things. And we've got, um, you know, everyone must fight for this and everybody's got to behave well. And, and there they are living in um, an amazingly expensive home mm. with a... 15, 16 bathrooms. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they spend a lot of time telling everyone to be eco-friendly and to be more green and to save the planet. And I can't imagine uh, what the carbon footprint is uh, of this mansion they're now living in with nine bedrooms, 16 bathrooms and a five-car garage. Yes, that's right. It's not only that, is it? It's actually how we've got to think. We've got to think in a certain way that she feels is right. Mm. Um, and the point about the royal family, and they, they're no longer actually big, important royals, but they are still from the royal family. The royal family is there to support us, to be there in times of need. We mm. saw that with the Queen, with her message. But what we don't like is the royals telling us what to do. That no. is not their prerogative, and um, it's, it's none of their business, No, really. quite. But also, she's been very good, the Queen, hasn't she, at making that um, you know, particular kind of um, difficult road uh, to, to tread seem very easy because she's always gets it. She always gets it right. You know, I mean, aside from that small blip, I suppose, during the Princess Diana um, uh, week when she was killed in the car crash and there was that whole kind of, you know, outcry about how the Queen didn't seem yeah. to be showing any empathy. Apart from that, every other single episode of her public life has been perfect. Well, you see, she is devoted to her sense of duty. She said that in her early 20s when she took the throne. Yeah. All my life I will give to 
do my duty. Um, there are not many people around like that. She's put everything else on the side because she really, really believes that the, the monarchy must continue and the only way to make sure it does from generation to generation is to be dutiful and to um, acknowledge your your the people around you, you know, the, the population. Right. Um, I, I don't think Megan quite understands that. Um, that's not necessarily her fault, but it's just not in her. Um, yes. Harry understands it. He was brought up like that by Diana, that whatever her problems with her husband were, that she brought them up to have a sense of duty and how important the monarchy was. Mm. Um even though she criticised it, she didn't pass that on to her children. No. And, and um, Harry should know better and put his foot down or say, no, we can't behave like this. Yeah, that's never going to happen, I'm afraid. She's already taken that particular right off him, I think. Angela, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Angela Levin, Royal Biographer, uh, on the news um, that Meghan and Harry might be coming back here to do some charitable works. Uh, but also, they'd really like to run a special project in Hollywood. Harry, let's make a movie, Harry. You can play the idiot and I'll be the star. How about that? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Lots and lots of you have got lots to say. Scrumpy says this, I have to admit I'm beyond fed up with this government and its control freak nature. I've lost nearly half a year of my life and most probably my business. I just don't understand why people are allowing them to keep on getting away with it. Well, I think it's an interesting point because so many people seem very happy with the way things are. That, that we are sort of sitting in this limbo-like situation where nothing is really happening where we have a virus, but it's kind of gone away, where very few people are getting infected, but we're told we have to stay doing absolutely nothing in order to continue to keep the rate of infection down. It doesn't make much sense, does it? And let's talk to Malcolm, who's in Oxford. Hello, Malcolm. Ah, good morning, Mike. Morning, sir. What can I do for you? Right, i just give you uh, an overview of an, the experience of visiting my GP yesterday. Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, it took ages to get 
through and book an appointment for right. a, an annual diabetic check. Okay. So I turn up at the surgery on the prescribed at the, the right time. Yeah. There's a number that you have to ring outside the surgery. What, to get into the building? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So you, you, you ring the number and it's answered. Name, give them a name. Okay, we'll come and get you. So the lady comes, gets me, mm -hmm. opens the first door, right? Before I can go any further, suddenly she, we both got masks on, suddenly she pulls a temperature gun oh, yeah. and holds it up. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what? So she takes the temperature. Then they put a new door in right. where it's got a, a keypad on mm -hmm. and the lady lets me go in there. What is a waiting area that used to have 30... 30 people sat there, receptionists, etc. Completely empty except for four chairs. Right. Right. Now, you're thinking, my goodness me. As soon as you see people in there, they've got masks on, they've got this on, that. And you start thinking, this is, this is pretty bad, mm. you know. Yeah. Anyway, my time coming for to go and have the check. Um, had to keep her mask on all times. Yeah. Um, went through all the checks and that. Is there anything else that I'd like to discuss? I said, yeah, I've got uh, rheumatoid. I think I've got rheumatism in my shoulder. Yeah. Okay, go through that. So you'll need to see the doctor then. I said, yes. Well, was so, it, wasn't that the person you were supposed to be seeing? Well, so the next thing is, <laughs> right, okay, you'll get a phone call from the doctor sometime today. Right. Right, okay, fine. So Thank you're in a GP surgery, they're yeah. telling you you should see a doctor, and then they send you home to call you from the yeah. doctor's and office. I think it's even better than that. I get home, yeah. um, a couple of hours later, um, the phone rings, and it's a nurse practitioner. Right. So he goes through it, very nice, very pleasant. He goes through exactly the same questions as I was asked previously by the philosophy, whatever it is, right. the blood person. Um Right, okay. Uh, yeah, it does seem that you'd need uh, an injection, one of these cortisones. Uh, he said, but I must warn you um, that it contains, these things contain uh, steroids, right. and steroids gives you uh, a greater chance of um, catching COVID and it being worse than it would normally. Oh, nice. Right, straight yeah. away. He said, so I'll, get, I'll book you in to have a phone call from the doctor. <laughs> So I said, oh, right. Yeah, so the I'm doctor. I'm sorry for laughing, but it's ridiculous. Yeah, isn't no, it? I'll tell you, Mike, the doctor will ring you Thursday afternoon. Right. He will discuss it with you over the phone, uh -huh. ask me the same questions, right? And then he will make an appointment when to see you. Right. So that's one, two, three, four sessions yeah. taken up. Why are people so scared? Goodness me, oh, no. if I was the sort of person that would be frightened, I wouldn't go out of the house after yesterday because you think, you know, this, the cost of this is phenomenal. Yes, I know. You I know, know it's absolutely ridiculous. Listen, Malcolm, I've got to run because I've got to talk to Neil Oliver. But listen, thanks for your call and thanks for your explanation. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, that is the trouble. This country appears to be being run uh, by the sort of people that you literally wouldn't put in charge of a sweet shop. Let's talk to Neil Oliver. Neil, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us once more. I sense uh, when I read your column at the weekend that you're you're a, a slightly at the end of your rope, end of your tether uh, with all of this, and I think a lot of us feel the same way. Oh, I suppose it's it's various things, really, isn't it? Um, I was uh, slightly, uh, well, I am 
uh, dismayed about the proposed uh, hate crime bill yes. uh, that's been proposed before the Scottish, that's going through the Scottish Parliament at mm. the moment, going through various processes there, uh, which, I mean, it, it, it somehow managed to bring together, you know, the, the unlikely bedfellows of the, you know, the, the Scottish Humanist Association, the Secular Society, the Catholic Church, uh, the, the Scottish Police Federation, the Faculty of Advocates, the, the Law Society, uh, and now 20 uh, named, you know, comedians, artists and authors, uh, all, all voicing concerns from their own uh, worlds about the, the, the chilling mm. effect that the proposed legislation would have on freedom of speech and freedom yeah. of expression. Uh, and I, I think to, uh, you know, to be contemplating uh, stifling debate and, and discourse in, in Scotland at such a time, at a time when, when, like never before, we seem to need to be able to discuss things and, and express our concerns mm. and hear our ex- anxieties for fear that otherwise they'll, you know, they'll turn poisonous yeah. you know, in, in the dark and in the silence, uh, to, to contemplate going into a future where it's going to be even harder to talk and that people will be, up here there's a, there is a pervasive atmosphere of people being frightened into silence. Mm. Now, you could argue till you were blue in the face of it whether that's the intention or not of the proposed legislation, but it's undeniable that that is the way in which it's being received here in many quarters. Yes. That people are increasingly, in my part of the world, feeling that this, the safest option uh, is just to keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, keep your thoughts to yourself, uh, for fear that now, you know, where previously it was just bringing down the hate of the of the mob mm. and, the, and, the, and the Twitter mob, now it could be a knock at the door and you could find yourself on the wrong side of the law. Yes. And presumably, uh, Neil, I would be also subject to that, given that if I broadcast something into Scotland and I say something that somebody objects to, uh, I could also be in some way sanctioned. Well, I, I think one of the words that has floated around the debate so far has been vagueness. Yeah. You know, I mean, you and I, we're not, we're not lawyers. We don't draft. We're not in the habit of drafting legislation. Uh, but as I understand it, lawyers require the law to be absolutely pin sharp. Mm. That's why it runs to you know, verbose pages of, of details so yeah. that there can be no grey areas that people know exactly what they're dealing with. Uh, and, and the way it's been worded at the moment, you know, the new hate, hate crime bill seems to have been you know, written on the back of an envelope in the pub, yeah. almost. It's so, so many, so wide are the are the gaps through which could be driven a coach and four. Uh, and so I can't honestly say, you, you, I, I think, yes, the, the, there's this uh, idea of stirring up hatred. Mm. And there's also this uh, idea that intent doesn't have to be proven. Uh, you merely have to say, as an injured party, that you have taken offence yeah. at something you have read or heard, uh, or, or indeed you've taken offence at, at literature or a book or a pamphlet or a Bible or whatever that somebody has in, the, in their possession. Yeah. Uh, and then it's the onus is on the person who has been so accused to demonstrate in court that they didn't mean to cause offence which is an inversion, as I understand it, of what was the previous state of mm. affairs. But that vagueness, that, that's what I mean. It's because people are going, well, looking at this, maybe the safest thing to do is just keep your mouth shut. And, and how unhealthy a state yes. of affairs is that? And why are they driving this at the SNP? I mean, is it a Nicola Sturgeon kind of inspired uh, crusade? Is it something that she's always wanted to do? Well, you know, the, the Justice Secretary is Hamza Youssef, who's a, quite a young chap, um, uh, seems to be quite, a, you know, he's, he's passionately 
defensive of what he proposes and, and says it won't stifle debate and all the rest of it. Mm. Uh, but but whether whether he is just you know the active agent, you know, voicing the words coming from from elsewhere, uh, I couldn't honestly say. But there has been. I mean, I have experienced it very, very personally. You know, I write a column, as you know, and I, and I have spoken out and written about my support for the continuation of the United Kingdom. And, yes. and, and I would prefer for Scotland to remain a part of the United Kingdom. You know, and I keep banging that drum. <laughs> and it annoys, literally annoys yeah. a, a specific part of the demographic. Um, uh, and whether or not there is it's just a, a determination to... to uh, to stifle debate, I honestly do not know. But as I say, that is what it feels like. Yeah. And I don't think it can surely be in any uh, administration or political party's interests to be perceived as trying to silence opposition. Is there any proper, proper opposition politically to this bill in the Scottish Parliament? Or is it going to get through? Well... Well, you know, the, uh, the, the SNP are very strong uh, in government here. Um, and to my mind, that there isn't much in the way of, of uh, impressive or determined uh, opposition. Mm. Um, you know, I think people that have spoken up and spoken out, you know, you're left to feel that you're, uh, that you're all on your own and that, you're, and that you're speaking out just on behalf of yourself. I mean... I mean, I feel all the time. I only, I only seek to represent my own point of view. I don't have a constituency. Mm. I don't represent any group. I'm not a member of any political party. Uh, I just feel that the right and the obligation, almost. Well, yes, I do feel the obligation to speak what I think is, um, well, what, yeah, what I know is my opinion and what I regard to be in the best interests of me and mine. Yeah, I think that's an obligation that we all have. And but there is a pervasive atmosphere up here of if you don't support and if you're not on side with uh, the SNP and the wishes of the government that you are in the wrong it's no longer just the case that you have an alternative point of view mm. you are seen you're invited to believe that you are wrong for not agreeing with the government right. I think that's sinister it really is sinister and it's very distressing in fact because here we are in what is still the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and you've got a small part of it uh, which appears to be able to make its own rules for those people who live in it. So, something else that I would really want to make clear, uh, I find it amazing that it has to be someone like me who's saying this. Mm. You know, it always seems to me that there ought to be somebody else right. who's, who's doing this. <laughs> but uh, I think maybe uh, on, in other parts of the UK, uh, courtesy and not least because of you know the, the daily... Uh, press conferences that the First Minister here is having and, and getting a lot of airtime in the rest of the UK, mm. uh, you know, just, you know, talking about COVID, but also straying into other uh, other matters, political. Uh, very much there's an impression that, given out that uh, the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and the SNP speak for Scotland. Yes. And I, I just want to make it clear that I know from the, from the connections that I have and the, and the community of which I am a part that... It's important for the rest of the UK to know that, that Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP speak for the SNP and the Scottish Government. Mm. And that there are not just thousands, but hundreds of thousands, maybe a figure with seven digits of people living up here who, for whom she does not speak mm. and for whom the SNP and the Scottish Government do not speak. Mm. Just as I only speak for myself, 
you know, so the so the SNP and the Scottish government speak for themselves. Yes, and this idea that they speak for Scotland, because mm. I I am aware of of a multitude of people around here, young and old, men and women, who do not feel that the the the, the face of Scotland that's being represented in the rest of the UK is ours. Mm. And we are in we are in silence. Yes. We, are, we have been silenced, and there's a very large congregation, if you like, who think and speak as I do. But at the moment, you just don't hear very much from them. And if this if this new legislation goes through, my prediction is that you'll hear a whole lot less. Mm. Yes, which would be dreadful, unless, of course, something can be uh, a sort of cause celebre where somebody where the first case that gets brought before the courts uh, suddenly erupts into some great big international scandal. And people go, this doesn't look right at all. This is not the way this country should be conducting itself, because it's almost like politicising a nation, isn't it? Because it's making the mistake that because you were the party that got the most votes, albeit a probably small uh, minority of the number of people living there, that you somehow now run the country, you know, because governments to me should be treated like football managers. You know, the football manager uh, is simply the guy that's running it for the moment. And when the football manager gets fired, another football manager comes in. But the, cu- the club remains the club. It's, it's all part of a, of a larger piece for me at the moment. You know, a whole, a whole parcel of concerns that has been, you know, getting larger and larger for me over a, you know, a long period of time. Yeah. I, I remember, a t- and I'm not talking about even when I was at school or at university, but certainly then, and much more recently, I remember when it, when everything wasn't about politics. Yeah. And indeed, the, the people that were of, of, of an avowedly and outspoken political frame of mind were often people that you avoided. I can remember when the people that were, that were passionate, card-carrying members of political parties, of whatever persuasion, you know, you were generally, you know, they were quite often an object of, well, ridicule yeah. or suspicion. You know, and always want people always wanted to talk about politics. It was like, oh, God, give it a break. Yeah, right. But now everything that we do, it seems to have, whether we want it to or not, political connotations. You know, I'm sure I know. I mean, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, but and I know that the reality is much more nuanced than what I'm about to express, but. There's, it's palpable that when it comes to, say, the wearing of, of masks at the moment, that it, there's a feeling that if you're wearing a, a mask, that you're in tune with, say, uh, the, the frame of mind that was to remain mm. in the European Union. And that if you've, if, you've out, if you've spoken about having any sort of doubts or reservations about wearing a mask, you seem to be a Brexiteer. Right. Now, I... I'm wearing a mask. You know, up here it's mandatory. If you're going into a shop, I don't wear it on the streets. Right. I don't wear it, but when no, I have to go into a shop, I put on a mask. And it's it's not a political statement that I'm making when I do that. Mm. I'm just of a mind. I don't want to cause upset for people. Right. And, you, you know, the feeling at the moment is that people broadly speaking, are feeling safer in shops if other people around them are wearing yes. masks. And it's, so not, and, it's not, and it's also not much of an imposition, really, is it? No. And I, but I, the last thing I generally want to do, I'm not, I don't cast myself happily in the role of contrarian. Yeah. So I don't want to cause people any upset. So although I'm slightly in doubt about the efficacy of, of wearing masks, I set that aside. Right. I put my mask on when I go into the shop to buy some groceries. And when I come out of the shop, I, I, I take my mask off. But it's been politicised. Mm. 
um, you know, up here, you know, the SNP were selling masks that had the Scottish flag on. I on saw. And they also had the SNP written on them as well. Or the SNP livery. Yeah. So it became it became uncomfortable. You know, you were thinking, well, I'm putting on a mask because I'm doing this for what I believe to be the greater good yeah. because I'm, I'm a, a sort of a communitarian at heart and I, I, I want to do whatever is thought to be best for the community as yeah. a whole. But I don't want to be, uh, you know... Be being seen to be making some kind of political statement by right. doing something that I think is just for the community good, but that's that's what's happened here, and I think increasingly that would just that's just a you know a, a, an example that I've whipped up out of, out of fresh air. Yeah, but it, it feels as if every step we take at the moment, every word we utter, uh, there are watchers and listeners out there who are determined to run it through some kind of filter, and and decide what group you are in. Yes. What political party you must belong to, or the whole a whole package of, of morals and ideas that must come on account of that thing which you just said or those yeah. words that you just wrote. Yeah, uh, and it's I find it um, so I feel as if almost as if I'm walking through treacle yeah. that is gradually hardening into cement. Right, and you're going to get stuck it's in it. I mean, I was I was talking to a couple of younger uh, colleagues yesterday. Uh, who who go through the business, which I'm very happy I don't have to do, which is uh, dating apps, right? Um, and they, and they put one of them said that I put down when it was uh, when it said politics, I put conservative down, and I just got a load of abuse from people. Never, never mind, no chance of getting a date. But the fact that you were conservative meant that basically nobody wanted to know you. You were a horrible human being, a disgraceful individual, you know, cruel, evil Tory. I mean, it's just remarkable. It's just somebody wants to go out for dinner. I know, but don't. Don't you remember? Well, I remember uh, that you know, when my parents would come back from the from the polling, from the from the from voting at yeah. a general election when I was a child, and I would say to my dad, "What did you vote?" And my dad would quite often say, "Don't be impertinent." Yeah, <laughs> I'm right. not telling you, right? Um, because and many people, many people were like that. Mm. You know, that that it was like not discussing religion or money. You, you didn't discuss your politics. Right. And, and you went people went privately into a booth and made the mark and that was it that mm. was them making their contribution to the political debate yes just putting across on a bit of paper and for the rest of the time they were all about everything else about culture about philosophy and music and yeah. comedy and the arts and their work and sport yeah and they were defined by all of those things right but, but increasingly as i say everything that we do it seems to define us as members of a political yeah, party. That's right. And it, and it comes with a whole, you're just kind of handed a whole like laminated sheet of you must be like this right. thing. And you're also not allowed, <laughs> as you and I both are, to be kind of unconnected to it. You know, people don't believe me when I say I'm not party political. Um, huh. They don't believe me when I tell them I've never voted for the Tory party. And similarly, they won't believe you if you say that you're kind of, you know, disenfranchised and you just do whatever you think is best at the time. Yes, I don't. I never have. Not not through any conscious decision. I have just never felt that any any political group, or really, frankly, any club or any kind of organisation, so completely represented me mm. that I felt that I wanted to belong to it. That's just not the way I see things. I mean, I just I just cherry pick right things that, that ideas and points of view and and, and attitudes and whatever from across the spectrum. Just moment by yeah, moment, I'm, which is surely the most intelligent way. Because that's surely the most intelligent way to do it. Otherwise, all you are uh, is a kind of um, uh, apparatchik 
who just agrees with everything from the people that you supposedly support. You, you and I have, we've discussed this before, thankfully. You know, we've got this ongoing conversation going on, which, you know, it's such a release valve mm. uh, in, a, in a, an increasingly, you know, constrained world. But, you know, we've, we've discussed the fact that you can't imagine that any group or any party that you feel aligned to will never go wrong right. or never make a mistake or never start to veer off in, in, a, in a wrong direction. You know, it's wheels kind of, you know, stuttering off mm. on the tracks and, go, and, and going off into the ditch. And you have you have to be able to see, oh, well, actually, I, I'll have to stand up and say now that I think my tribe or my group or my party is wrong now. Yeah. Right. And actually, a point of view being expressed by our traditional enemies, let's say, is actually better. And we should pull back closer to them and realign ourselves mm. and get our group back on track yeah. by having the, the the evolutionary sense to see that the the landscape around us is constantly changing. You know, now we've got a world changed by a virus that nobody knew was coming. This is a new set of circumstances. Mm. And whatever anyone's political party said in the past about how the future should unfold, you, you know, the, the ball's up on the slates again and everyone's having to make things up as they go on the hoof. Mm. And that's the way it should be. And I think... I think that's why this increasing polarization where people are being pulled to left or right or to or to conservative or to, or to labor or, or, or whatever is so unhelpful and I, I really genuinely feel that the, this closer to the center is the more if you like sophisticated place to be because it, it demonstrates that you're listening to both extreme camps and that you're trying as far as possible to walk the very narrow tightrope between through the center ground that's the harder path to walk because it involves listening to sounds coming in from left and right yeah. rather getting trapped in these positive feedback loops that develop otherwise where everything just starts if it starts to tilt either to left or right before you know where you are it's tilting faster and faster mm. harder harder to that direction you have to keep paying attention to the other side that that tension of the pull from the other side is what should keep you in the centre, which is the more sophisticated and open-minded place to be. Yes, absolutely right. Neil, I'm sorry to say we're out of time already, but listen, um, fascinating. We shall keep this going because there's more to say uh, about this bill, uh, the Freedom of Speech bill up in Scotland. We'll get to that. Uh, we'll do some more on it next week. Neil Oliver, thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, let's talk to Patrick Christie's now, uh, Conservative commentator. Uh, he, of course, was with me yesterday as we filmed Plank of the Week. Um, and uh, he's back now uh, to talk to us about car parks, because I seem to remember, Patrick, you told me a story yesterday um, about getting a parking ticket. Yes, I did. Morning, Mike. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, I fell victim to Southwark Council. I'm very pleased you're giving me this forum because I thought that my time to, to vent my frustration <laughs> on, on National Airways had been and gone. And, uh, and alas... Screw you, Southern Council. So, um, yes, basically, I was uh, I was one of the the many people who were, were bracketed as key workers in the yes. wake of uh, the the coronavirus crisis. Of course, slightly less key than a nurse, but um, uh, there we go. And I, I just I had to I had to park. I had to park my car. Their ticket machine wasn't working, and so I had a radio show to do at the time. So I was like, right, I've got to go. And mm. so I came back to find a a, a non-essential parking warden had, had given me a ticket. I then tried to contact Southern Council, which I don't know if you've ever done that, but you I have. More luck you'd have more luck trying to teach Dostoevsky to, to a pigeon than you would to actually <laughs> get through to a human being on their phone lines. Um, so eventually, 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 I managed to get through to a human being who sent me a picture of my car 
on an empty road down a side street and told me that I'd been blocking access to a hospital that was five miles away, which is why I had to pay my ticket. Unbelievable. So, uh, it really yes, is. There we go. It's quite extraordinary. No, I had a similar experience about going up a one-way street the wrong way because I couldn't see the no-entry sign because it was about 50 feet in the air. And as you were driving along, you wouldn't actually have ever seen it. But but I had the same thing. In the end, I just gave up. I, just, I said to them on the phone, I said, I've just lost the will to live. This is what you do. Uh, you make yeah, people get yeah. to the point where you'd rather just pay the money uh, than, than go through another you know several weeks of angst but the story today that we're looking at uh, is that apparently uk drivers spend more than five and a half million hours each each year searching for their parked cars now presumably these are people who forget where they've parked yes well, well they are they did a different survey in brixton and in moss sign it said they only spent 20 minutes to ask because they were looking for somebody else's car but um <laughs> no, five, five and a half million hours collectively now i calculated this mike that is 627 years now, given that it takes 36 years to reach the edge of interstellar space, yes. we are doing something seriously wrong here as a nation that we keep misplacing our car. I wonder whether or not it's just because by the time that you've got back there, so that council have towed it. Well, that's the other thing, I suppose. I mean, uh, I've, I've only uh, ever had a car towed away once, really, and that was in New York, and it was, at the time, a car that belonged to my girlfriend, and they towed it away uh, and put it tum- somewhere on the west side, and it was a pretty badly beaten-up old Dodge Colt. And uh, they said to me, um, well, you can come and pick the car up, but it has $1,200 worth of unpaid parking tickets on it, which I didn't know. Uh, and I said, that's fine. In that case, you can just keep the car. And they went, what? I said, well, I don't want it. It's not worth $1,200. You keep it. And they didn't really know what to do. And so I never have ever went and got it back. It was fine, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. I wonder, I do wonder, you know, we were scratching our heads a bit, weren't we, about what is it that some of these people don't seem to get about, about you know, some of the government guidelines, when you can sunbathe and things like that. Yeah. Why are we scratching our heads, weren't we? What is it that some of these people don't understand? I think it's the same people who've taken this survey, right? Because... You know, they, they, they're probably complaining, aren't they? Oh, well, Boris Johnson didn't give me a tracker for my car. Yeah. I couldn't possibly be trusted to remember which street I parked the ruddy thing on. Right. You know? I mean, I can understand if you've parked it, say, at one of those long-term car parks at the airport, uh, yeah. that you might forget precisely which place you parked it in because no doubt when you did park it, it was about four o'clock in the morning. You were bleary-eyed because you had to get some early flight. There were some children being herded into a bus and you thought you noted down that it was section C, subsection 54,000. And it turns <laughs> out you then got the wrong bus to the wrong place. I mean, that I can understand. But if you're parking in, in a street in London, surely to God you can remember where it was. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? You, you? you would hope so. Although this study I saw was carried out by Skoda, so maybe these people just wanted to lose their cars. <laughs> there's always that possibility. I once, there's another weird story that happened to me once. I, went, I once went to a Crystal Palace game, um, and as I was walking out uh, to sort of try and find my way home, couldn't see any taxis anywhere. These guys walked up to me, recognised me, and said, I will give you a lift back to London. So I said, that sounds like a good idea, fine. I mean, probably a really idiotic idea, actually, because these are two blokes that I'd never met before in my entire <laughs> life. We then spent the next 20 minutes walking around uh, Crystal Palace looking for their car because they couldn't remember which road it was in and I'm going yeah. are you sure that you've even got a car at this point I know yeah that's it and I, I, I was I was digging down a bit into some of these the, the studies here and it says that 12% of men admit that they've lost their car or lose their car three times in a year compared to 16% of women and, and, I, and I ran that by my mum before and she, after she'd stopped beating me, she said that um, <laughs> actually uh, that that's, that was because women are always multitasking so they've got more on. Yeah. So there you go. But I, I, did have, I did have a bit of a shocker with that with Barnet Council as well where I'd parked my car, I'd gone to the cinema and, and I came back and I found a ticket on it and I couldn't understand why. 
the thing with parking tickets is you're always adamant that you're in the right yes. until they just bore you into submission. So mm. I um, I sent pictures, took pictures of the car, sent it in, and they said, there's a parking suspension here. I said, well, well where is it? And the traffic warden had taken a picture of it, kindly. The sign was behind a skip. Uh. So I would have had to have looked behind the skip to see this tiny little yellow sign. But no, alas, there's £80 pounds I'm never getting back. I must admit, there is that thing whenever I see a parking suspension sign. And I can freely admit, you know, I'm not a stupid person, but I don't actually know what it means. I don't know yeah. whether that means you can park there or you can't park there. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point, actually. I, I, I thought that as well a little bit. You know, kind of look, so were there parking charges that have now been suspended? Yeah. Or was there parking here? Yeah. That, I mean, does that it is... mean that parking suspended, i.e. you can't park? Or does it mean that paying for the parking is suspended so you can park and you don't have to pay? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, goodness knows, goodness knows. But I mean, this is the thing where, but this was the interesting thing for me. And this is what we're seeing now a lot. I was at, I was at Euston Station yesterday, obviously, to do the Plank of the Week, which yeah. you can see now on YouTube. And, um, and I was wondering why there were so many police officers there. So many police officers, at least, at least 20, right? And actually, it emerged that they were there singularly, as far as I could see, to stop people who weren't wearing face masks, right? Really? So yeah. get a fine, right? Now, they are, they've become the new traffic wardens, haven't they? They're yeah. like face wardens now. So you've got these traffic wardens, even in the wake of this, this pandemic that was happening, you've got you know, everything kicking off, the world's gone to part, a very succinct list of key workers who are allowed out of lockdown. And by the way, I think on which traffic wardens were particularly one, and then the councils still farm out all their traffic wardens uh, often outsourced, by the way, to other companies, yes. not even official council traffic wardens, to go and just rake in the last bit of money they can possibly rinse out of society before we all maybe die. Thank yeah, you, I, saw, I saw another story actually this morning. I'm not sure if it's in here, but it was it was something about um, Lon both London and Cardiff have given the councils even more powers now uh, to actually give you even more tickets. Right. Uh, fining motorists for traffic offences uh, after figures showed that London and Cardiff collected more than 58 million quid in fines in 12 months. I mean, what are they doing with all this money? Yes, well, this is what I want to know, right? Because you always see, don't you? Well, you know, I remember sitting, I'm sure you did as well in the, in, in your early days, Mike, sitting in on these these tedious local council budget meetings, yeah. you know. And you sat there and it's it's that time, that time of the year where we decide what unfortunate tax hikes we're going to have to make for mm. everybody. Oh, has it gone up? Has it gone up by another nine percent? Has it? Fantastic. Well, where's all this money going? You've got your speed cameras everywhere, you've got your traffic wardens absolutely everywhere. The money for those keeps going up. You keep making us pay congestion charges, all of this stuff. Where is that money going? Oh, that's what I want to know. Well, I can tell you where it's going in London. It's going to, to the people that run the TFL, uh, who are all on right. very large six-figure salaries. I think <laughs> the guy that runs TFL is on about 700 grand a year. I mean, it's unbelievable. Absolutely incredible. But uh, but listen, uh, great to see you yesterday. Plank of the Week, very successful. One of the funniest ones ever, I think. Um, and we settled on uh, uh, somebody that uh, I'm not going to tell everybody who it is, uh, but somebody who decided to work from home uh, from a foreign country. <laughs> Yes, good stuff. Exactly. TFL would be proud, wouldn't they? We'll have to get them in there at some point, actually. But Patrick, listen, good to see you. We'll talk to you again soon. Patrick Christie's there uh, talking about the nightmare uh, of having to get parking tickets and having to try and get off paying them because it becomes this kind of absolute labyrinth of hell that you can never get out of. You spend ages and ages trying to find somebody to talk to, uh, which you eventually can't then get any actual sense out of. And as I say, when I got my um, uh, fine for uh, going up the one-way one street the wrong way, because I didn't know it was a one-way street, because the sign that said it was a one-way street was so high in the air that you literally would have had to be riding a giraffe to see it um, on its head. 
And so, anyway, I just gave up. But we'll play Plank of the Week coming up next because uh, lots and lots of plankery going on uh, and some of it dating all the way back to last week. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The, the, the day is going very quickly. I'm amazed that we're already at home schooling. Um, and of course, tomorrow uh, is the day for GCSE results to be uh, printed out. I've just got uh, an email from my son's school uh, saying, we are very aware that at this time uh, you might be getting very nervous. Well, I mean... Who knows what people are getting because nobody knows what they're getting uh, with regard to this grading system. But I dare say we'll talk about that sometime tomorrow. Um, now, uh, this is homeschooling, though, because it's now 12.30. And every day after the 12.30 news, we do a bit of homeschooling. So if you've got your children uh, with you, uh, make sure they're standing around the radio uh, and or indeed a hurling. A hurling? No herding themselves around the uh, television if you're watching it on YouTube or on Facebook or on Twitter, of course. And um, it's time to talk uh, to our good friend Stuart Winter, Sunday Express's Nature columnist. Stuart, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Now, we're talking today about penguins. Now, there was a story, was there not, about a penguin that was spotted somewhere um, walking around uh, a road uh, in England. Nobody's quite sure how it managed to get there. Exactly. Yeah, the the police um, discovered one wandering around the other day, and it's not the first time that it's happened. And uh, I remember back back in the day, there was an urban myth about a... um, a school party going to a zoo and um, getting back to the getting back to class and um, the kids bringing a um, penguin out. But I think that that's very much an urban myth. But, yes, um, they are kept as pets. But the best place if you are going to see them is see them in the wild. Well, right. I mean, I've for, for a lot. I mean, I've seen them in in zoos. Edinburgh Zoo's got quite a lot of them, and I think I've seen them uh, in a zoo in New York as well. But I mean, I love the uh, the sort of documentaries that are done about them because they're such fascinating and funny creatures, aren't they? Oh, they're amazing, and I think the reason why we love penguins is because they're they're upright they stand up on their feet and um, they look a bit human don't they we 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 regard them as um, human beings in in a lot of ways they've got a lot of human traits and they're very comical and going back to new york zoo they they had a very famous pair of uh, penguins that actually had two males who bonded together oh that's right yeah i remember that they actually um they started to try to incubate a stone and Mm. in the end the keepers put a proper um fertilised egg there and they, they raised the, raise the baby. Right. They're amazing. Funnily enough, due to the wonders of our technological department, we've got some uh, film of uh, footage of the penguins. Because there was a movie made, wasn't there, um, of the penguins um, and their kind of travel from one, po- one point of, uh, of, of the South Atlantic, I think, to another. Because they're only in that part of the world, really, aren't they? Well, that's right. I mean, in fact, there's a new study out today which actually shows how penguins have evolved. And remarkably, they believe now that penguins actually originated in Australia. Mm. And some of them went south and have adapted to life in the Arctic. One of the penguins actually can go as far up as the Galapagos Islands, which are on the equator. So they're they're amazingly widespread. And... um, in fact, there's 18 different species, and sadly, 10 of those are now under serious threat oh, really? of extinction. Yeah, and there uh, are different types of penguins. The emperor penguins, I guess, being the, 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 the biggest or the father of the penguins. Well, that's right. I mean, the, peng- the, the, the emperor penguin may well be the very last one to have evolved because it's so well adapted to the climatic conditions where it lives. I mean, it can live in temperatures up to 76 degrees, minus 76 wow. degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. And what happens is the male penguin 
actually looks after the egg. He incubates mm. the egg after the female has laid it. She goes off and can travel up to 100 miles or more yeah. to find sea. And he spends the whole winter looking after this egg on his feet. And they just uh, stand on it, don't they, basically? Exactly, yeah. And the, those the feet as a sort of blood supply, and it stops the... Um, it just rests on the top of the feet, so it stops the, um, the egg from becoming chilled. And mm. then the mother bird comes back, and they swap places after a... Um, after two months of incubation, right. and then the dad goes off and finally gets something to eat because he can't eat during that time. And is it normally just one penguin in the egg? It's just a, a, yeah, it's a single, one, they, single they, baby they penguin. They have one egg, and they look after that. I mean, they're, they're very big eggs, um, so I, I think a female would find it quite difficult to actually yes. produce two. Yeah, I imagine. But, um, and then the, the baby baby penguin is then sort of looked after by the by the mother. Mm. It's a fascinating sort of um, world that they live in as well because they seem to be very um, sort of community-oriented, if you, if you know what I mean, because they seem to live in quite large um, sort of communes, don't they? Well, exactly. I mean, the emperor penguins rely on each other for warmth. Right. I mean, that they actually sort of form this massive scram, mm. uh, scrum. Um, by coming all together, their, their sort of transfer of body heat helps each other. But penguins are incredibly well-insulated probably the most well insulated of any creature mm. in the planet right. because they have feathers density of something like 100 per square inch right. and then they've got 30 percent of their body which is blubber because it doesn't look like they have feathers really does it i mean when they have when they sort of spread their wings slightly you can see that um they have wings but they look more like arms really but they don't appear exactly they that, don't, I mean, they don't look as if well they've got feathers to life so the feathers have become almost like just like sort of like our body hair, basically, mm, right. and they're they're very thin. But although they can't fly, it's said that certain species of penguin can actually fly faster than Usain Bolt can run. So over a hundred meters, mm. a penguin would win in a in a, in a, you know, a swimming race in the, against the running race. Yes, and they're very um, um, adaptable as well, aren't they? They can stay underwater for around twenty minutes at a time. I'm, I'm seeing here they can drink seawater as well. Spot on. I mean, they're one of the very few creatures can actually um, convert. Um, salt water into fresh water for their body functions and I mean again they can hold their breaths for 20 minutes and I think one has been recorded as going as deep as 500 metres wow. which is sort of, sort of the area where our um, nuclear nuclear submarine haunts. Right. I mean they're really um, incredible creatures for um, breaking all types of Olympic records Yes, and in the water I presume they are uh, seen as very nice uh, food for certain uh, creatures that are in the water as well well, very much so. I mean, um, the, the leopard seal in, um, off the Antarctic ice shield can make um, very short work of a, of a penguin. Mm. But one of the interesting things, and I think I'm sure that all the listeners would love to hear this, is the fact that penguins, they're, they're black above and white below, mm. and that basically acts as their camouflage. So they're very difficult to spot from above because they, they look the, like the colour of seawater if there's a predator above the water. Yes. And from below, they're white, and so they look like the sun. And if we think of the birds that we have in this country, like the puffin, the guillemot, and the razorbill, mm. who are f flying birds, they're nothing to do with penguins, but they've adapted the same type of um, plumage pattern, and it's yes. called convergent evolution, and it really shows you how evolution can work at opposite ends of the, of the planet. Mm, absolutely right. And how many penguins are there, if you know the answers to that, in the world? In terms of species, there's 18 species. Right. 
and ten of those are under threat from the um, from all manner of things, from overfishing, from climate change, and, and in fact some species are having problems because seals are doing particularly well, and the seals actually um, create their own breeding colonies between the sea and where the um, the penguins like to breed. So that's a that's an issue, and then there's other other problems such as oil spills. Yes. And um, the thinning of the ice is becoming a, a major problem because mm. it means that the um, the areas where they can actually go fishing are um, getting more difficult to reach. No, of course. And how long do they live normally? That's a good question. I would think, and I'm only guessing here, that um, I mean birds are great for longevity. So I would think a, a penguin, by, you know, one of the large emperor penguins, could well clock up 30 years. But I'll look that up and um, yeah. let you know next time I speak. They're amazing. Them. They're wonderful. Well, Stuart, listen, thank you very much indeed. Stuart Winter there, uh, who is, of course, the Sunday Express's nature columnist. We're looking at some um, film. If you're watching it now on YouTube, it's absolutely fantastic. The way that penguins walk, there's no way, uh, if you looked at that from a long way away, you wouldn't think that they were actually a lot of old men staggering about walking to the pub. That's what they look like. I'm not joking. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.